Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. I'm Pat Iyer, and today we're going to be talking about a profession, a specialized aspect of nursing that has gained a lot of traction over the years, and that is of the nurse practitioner, an advanced practiced role that is current in the United States and in many other countries. With me today is Dr. Arlene Wright, who has her doctorate in nursing practice that she earned in the state of Florida. And an interesting fact is that we met through being involved in an LNC listserv, and we live literally across the street from each other in Fort Myers. Dr. Wright is active in state nurse practitioner associations. She is on faculty. She is invited to come and speak on the topic and was interviewed locally about some of the controversies between NPs and physicians, and that article was just picked up by the Washington Post. So you never know when you are published in a local publication how that might capture the attention of somebody who's writing on a very different plane. Welcome to the show, Arlene. Thank you so much, Pat. And it was a pleasure. And I think that it's just so ironic, as Pat mentioned, that here we started talking and she said, what zip code do you live in? And we started realizing that, yes, that she is right across the street. So we will definitely be meeting in person when she comes back to my neck of the woods. Yes, for sure. Let's focus on the role of the nurse practitioner and how it has evolved. And within the context of the issue that this article pointed out is some of the territorial conflicts between physicians and nurse practitioners that have popped up and haven't seemed to have gone away, even though nurse practitioners have been around for decades. Very, very so, true, Pat. And it's tell me interesting. a little bit more about the role sure. and, and how it's evolved. So the role of the nurse practitioner was actually created by, we call her our godmother, a co-founder, Dr. Loretta Ford, who actually saw this with Dr. Henry Ford as a need because of the shortage, believe it or not, of pediatric providers, um, especially in rural areas. And so they carved out this role, really looking more towards public health. And that's kind of where the foundation was. But as you mentioned, Pat, over the years, it has evolved because, as we know, there is a real and perceived shortage of primary care providers in the country that continues to grow, especially in certain areas like Florida, where we have baby boomers. So this advanced role actually fills a gap. And, and one of the things that I did want to mention is that so advanced practice nurses, which is what we are, actually encompasses four roles. So there's the nurse practitioner that you're familiar with. There's the certified nurse midwife, clinical nurse specialist. Yes, there are still some that are around and as well as the CRNAs. So there are the four roles. And 
as I mentioned, Dr. Ford, this actually came from more than 50 plus years of proven quality and efficacy throughout and cost effectiveness. But yet, as Pat, as you mentioned, there still exists these territorial wars. And um, it, it's interesting because it's in pockets. It's not really generalizable, but um, in places where there are, and I think we're probably going to talk about this later, that there's over 27 states and territories um, in the Pacific that actually have full practice authority. And there's never been a revocation of that. So I know we're going to talk more about that later. Well, you've introduced the concept, we don't want to keep people in suspense. Full okay. practice authority is a term that begs for a definition. It sure does. And it's a mouthful. And actually, one of our very, some of our advocates have actually called it more of a, um, apologize, they have called it more of a plenary role. So it's really allowing people to practice to the full extent of their licensure and training. And, and that's really what the role that we do, because as you know, nurse practitioners, we assess, we, we follow all of the guidelines of nursing practice, but we assess, we prescribe, we treat, we order tests, we interpret tests, we work collaboratively. And I think that's a big key word is that we work collaboratively with all of our colleagues. We were interdisciplinary and case managers before that even came in into vogue. But full practice authority actually allows nurse practitioners to practice again, to their full licensure and scope without having a supervisory relationship with a physician. And the best way that I can describe this as it was once described to me is that it's kind of like having a driver's license. When you first are of age, you get a permit and you are with somebody and you're learning, you're learning how to drive and actually you're learning to, you're learning your skill, you're honing your craft. Well, then after you have that training, you pass your test, you're able to drive on your own. Well, I know that's a, a strange analogy, but it pretty much does follow suit because nurse practitioners have aggressive training. Most are either masters prepared or many are doctorally prepared. So they've gone through this training, they've gone through clinical hours. And what makes us unique, and I often describe this to the question we get asked a lot of times is what's the difference between nurse practitioners and physicians assistants is that nurse practitioners come from a background ingrained in nursing. So we have spent years at the bedside. We are well-equipped. We have that holistic concept. So we are able to manage these, you know, from, we say it from cradle to death. I mean, that's what it evolves. And I, I think we're going to lead into another question, which is going to talk about certification. You mentioned the educational level. Are there still any nurse practitioners left who were grandmothered in who don't have a master's degree? So I think those are really few and far between because that the laws changed actually in 2002, I believe it became, you had to have a master's degree in order to gain licensure in the state of Florida. I mean, other states vary as well, mm -hmm. but um, those programs, unfortunately, kind of fell by the wayside. Um, it kind of is equivalent to back in the day. And we're really going to, I'm really going to date myself when there was diploma school nurse for nurses that they were, you know, trained, you know, truthfully at the hospitals and they worked shifts. So those unfortunately with the times have changed. You don't have to worry about dating yourself too much, Arlene, because I went to a diploma program and the people who when who graduated the year before I, that group 
were expected to staff the hospital units without any registered nurses on the floor. The units were run by the student nurses on evening and night shift. And then when I joined the nursing program, somebody said, you know, it's probably not the best idea to put student nurses in charge of a wing full of patients without anyone with a license. So they said, we won't do that anymore. Yeah, not a good idea. (laughs) In today's landscape, as we talk about nurse practitioners, uh, they're not always located in an office with a little shingle on the outside, a little sign that says, uh, Arlene Wright, NP. Tell us where can we find them within the United States? And that's a great question, Pat, because again, as you talked about the whole evolving nature. So I think as the profession and the needs continue to grow, so you will see nurse practitioners. So there's all different levels of credentialing. So you will see nurse practitioners work in hospitals. Most of them are acute care nurse practitioners. There are nurse practitioners that work in pediatric offices, pediatric nurse practitioners, women's health nurse practitioners um, that work in the GYN setting, psychiatric nurse practitioners, huge and a huge void that we have. I mean, we know that there is a severe mental health crisis in this country and we have pleaded, pleaded with the powers that be to allow psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners to have full practice authority because of the need. Um, There is um, adult nurse practitioners that you will just see in adult settings, geriatric nurse practitioners. And then of course, you know, teaching faculty, you know, academia, um, research. So there is just the one thing that we've always said about nursing as well is that there is so much diversity. You can be all that you want to be in a myriad of settings. And I'm thinking of a couple of settings also of people who work in urgent care, who are independent. And in drugstores, there are some nurse practitioner clinics as well as in shopping malls, which we are rapidly losing in the United States to the internet, but there are still some malls that are alive and thriving. Uh, In those outpatient settings, there might be a walk-in clinic with a nurse practitioner in charge. And you bring up a very good point. You know, again, it's looking at the need, you know, what are the needs of the communities? What are the needs of your population? And, you know, those clinics, unfortunately, you know, COVID came, there were so many different things that kind of caused them to kind of fade a little bit. They're not as popular, but what a great concept to be able to come in, you know, get your, get your, like for a child, get their sports physical for school, get their immunizations, get their prescriptions and pick up a carton of milk. I mean, that's like the best scenario to be able to do, you know, all in one. And, and, and we do, you know, I think that we look to try to cater again, because we know that people, we live in a very fast paced, high tech society. So you do want to try to have as many things under one roof as possible. Um, and, you know, studies have definitely show in areas where you put nurse practitioners, for example, I'll just throw out like long-term care nursing homes. They have been able to reduce the incidence of falls. And we know that's a huge liability. The incidence of pressure ulcers, the incidence of medication incidences and everything like that, because doing med reconciliation. So, you know, these are just some areas um, here in Florida, we have also, and this is kind of a touchy subject too, one of high sensitivity, we've also um, written a white paper per se to try to appeal to um, the legislature and the governor to try to implant nurse practitioners in schools um, so that they can get the help that they need 
early on, you know, seeing some of the, the, the things that have happened, the tragedies that have happened in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's all kinds of implications for that, aren't there, Arlene? Definitely. And there's true, you know, going back to your initial point, you know, and that's the point that I think we have to make. I think there's enough people to go around for everybody. And I think there's a niche for everybody. And, you know, in the perfect world, and this is, um, so when I went, got my master's, um, one of the things that, you know, we talked about was the fact, you know, working as a team. And that's, you know, kind of now where we're going back to again, you know, collaboration is the best tool that we have for patients to be able to offer them the expertise of, you know, because we know not everybody can do everything. Not in, in contrary to public report, not everybody is a jack of all trades. But, you know, leaning on other people's fortes, specialty areas, I mean, I think that's a win-win for, for promoting excellent patient outcomes. I had the opportunity to do a presentation in Australia several years ago for the International Council of Nurses. And there were people giving talks on the research findings. And the one that I remember most vividly was a group of people who studied the concept of what type of healthcare provider was most rewarding for patients. What did patients gravitate to? What did they prefer? The nurse practitioners came over higher than the physicians because of the amount of time that they spent teaching, establishing rapport, explaining, interacting with the patient in a friendlier way, if I can use the word friendlier. And I know that for a physician group, they might say, oh, but, you know, we do the same thing with our patients. What do you say about, is there a difference and can we generalize? So I think we hear that a lot. And I think, again, I think that comes from the core nursing values that we have and the fact that all of us, you know, love to teach and educate our patients. And I agree with all the research that has shown that, that they did studies early on that showed that, you know, when patients left the office, they're First of all, their, their patient satisfaction levels were high, but also they understood their disease processes. And, you know, now when we look at the whole social determinants of health and how that impacts, you know, we, again, you know, we're kind of the pioneers of doing that, you know, trying to ensure that patients had the appropriate medications, you know, did they have the services they need? So again, I mean, I, I think, and I, I might've stressed this in the article too, that like Dr. Ford's dream was for everybody to be able to, to work together as a team, because I think we all need each other. Nobody, you know, works in a silo. We say that all the time, you know, it's great to be able to refer to your colleagues, um, to pick up a phone and ask someone a question, you know, lean on your experts. I, I, I think that's, and maybe nurse practitioners, because we're nurses, we just, that's a more familiar ground for us. Mm-hmm. We've touched on the education level, that the entry level at this point is master's degree. There are nurse practitioners who have gone on and completed a doctoral program. I know also that I often see a C, certified registered nurse practitioner. Tell us about the certification piece. What goes into being able to add that to your credentials? 
Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. You can overcome your fears of group presentations. When you're making a presentation to a group of attorneys, consider the following. You're the center of attention. You may not like this. That's a problem we address in powerful LNC presentations, How to Get the Case. I'm Pat Iyer, the author of this new book and a legal nurse consultant since 1987. Here's what you need to feel comfortable when you are making a presentation to a group of attorneys. You must speak well. You must represent yourself as knowledgeable. You must be able to answer questions quickly and easily by thinking on your feet. You must appear calm and self-assured. You are advertising yourself. Public speaking, whenever it occurs, is traumatic for countless people. Often they were forced in school to get up in front of a board and possibly mean fellow student body and stumble through a speech or report without any preparation in the art of speaking. The good news is that many of them have overcome their traumas to become notable speakers. So can you. Presenting to attorneys, sharing your knowledge is one of the surest ways to draw attorneys to you. You can get valuable help with these issues from several sources, such as books, seminars, or a coach. Some coaches devote significant portions of their practice to helping people overcome resistances. Consider taking a seminar on speaking or getting coaching with a group like Toastmasters. Practice giving speeches or talks in relaxed environments before small groups. Don't risk a setting that might be critical to your career until you feel confident. Introverts, and I'm one, can bring special observation talents to the role of LNCs, but they don't love being scrutinized. This can create a challenging feeling of self-consciousness and vulnerability. The tips in powerful LNC presentations, how to get the case, will help you overcome these feelings. Get it today at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Now let's return to the show. So that's a board certification that in most states is actually mandatory for licensure. And there's two different bodies. So there's either the American, they still call it the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners. They offer, and they don't have a full plethora. So they just have certain specialties. And then there's ANCC, which many people are familiar with, which they have a much more broader. And so you obviously, upon graduation, you just like when you were taking your NCLEX as an RN, you you have to you have to submit your application for this and you then take the exam and that gives you board certification and that board certification obviously comes with it you know like what is that the Yoda the Yoda said or something in the time that with great power comes great responsibility because it is your responsibility to keep up with those requirements and to stay you know that's why we always say lifelong education lifelong learning as as a nurse and it continues on and even even more so because your patients you're at a higher level of expectation. I mean, I think there's always a high level of expectation, but I think as a nurse practitioner, you're held to an even higher standard. 
And that's why scope of practice is very important as well. And I think we're going to mention a couple of things about that too. Scope of practice is a big issue, as you brought up. I'm thinking about the areas where the nurse is practicing independently and has prescriptive privileges, can write prescriptions, which probably horrified the physicians when they first heard about this privilege being given to a group of people other than themselves. In the United States, with the system that we have, there has to be somebody who's got an insurance policy for it to be worthwhile for a plaintiff attorney to file a suit. Just having a bad outcome, injured patient, is not enough. There has to be somebody who's got a pocket, an insurance policy, that can compensate the patient for the injuries, assuming that malpractice has been proven. In the state of Florida, in which you practice, in which I'm a resident, there is not a universal requirement for physicians to carry their own policy. They may be on staff in a hospital, they may run their office practice and not have a drop of insurance coverage, therefore no pocket to tap. I'm sure that is the case in some other parts of the United States and probably other parts of the world. How does that impact the nurse practitioner who's working with a physician who has no insurance coverage. And, and that is an issue, Pat, you're correct, because again, they're gonna go after you know deep pockets and in the state of Florida, regardless, so you're, you're correct that physicians can go bare. They have to, I believe, post some type, of, I don't wanna say a bond, but they have to have something and they have to have it, it has to be visualized when a patient comes into the office, they have to be able to know that this physician does not carry any malpractice insurance. But the state of Florida, what when we have one of one of my colleagues is actually sits on the probable cause for the Board of Nursing. And so she is very adamant when she educates nurses and nurse practitioners to make sure that you carry what is the legal limit. Because if you carry more than that, unfortunately, you're going to have a big red target on your back. So, you know, it, it, it is, it does become come out of a complex situation because of the fact that you could be in a relationship. So that has to be something that needs to be looked at on an individual basis, because again, is that increasing the nurse practitioner's liability? Um, so again, you know, you always want to follow the standards of, of care and, and the law, the laws in your state, you know, making sure you know, you know, how much liability insurance you need to carry and protect yourself, but also make sure that you're not making marking yourself as a target for someone to come after you. And another thing that I, I want to mention too, that maybe people might not be aware of. So there's something called sovereign immunity and sovereign immunity applies to situations where, so for example, if you work for a government entity like the VA, then you are covered under sovereign immunity, which means that you do not have to hold malpractice insurance because of the fact that I guess they feel people don't sue the government, but I mean, they're, they're obviously there's a standard of care there too. And in certain healthcare systems where they are considered safety net hospitals and they are receiving obviously monies toward indigent care, they fall under sovereign immunity too. So that makes things a little bit different too, because in those situations, there is um, a limit on what can be, um, what the plaintiff can, can receive in damages. And you slipped in a term a few minutes ago that I wanted to return to, which was the probable cause board. Your colleague mm -hmm. sits on the board. Can mm -hmm. you tell us what that means? 
Sure. Probable cause. So if, for example, somebody puts in a complaint against your license, so it goes through a process. I mean, it's not automatically that somebody comes to your door with handcuffs and they take you away. It's not like that. I mean, they look into this. So they have to determine, you know, is this really legitimate? And as Pat, as you alluded to, too, you know, you're looking at a breach of care. You know, was there damage? Was there intent? Was there a relationship? All of those things have to be there. And then there is a probable cause panel, which is made up of attorneys, past board of nursing members, that they actually review these cases. And something that was came into vogue very recently was, I'm sure everybody is familiar with the cases of those schools that were found to be fraudulent. So that involved a lot of people in Florida. I think there was like four other states as well. So they're tasked with the responsibility to determine, do these charges, are, are, they, are they deemed necessary? Or are, do they fit? They, do they fit that there was, you know, malintent? And um, so, and, and, and then if that does, if they do deem that, that that is probable cause, then it goes to the next level where then the um, person, the licensee is served. And to clarify for people who are not familiar with the school issue, correct me if I'm wrong, Arlene, these were schools that were shut down. They were issuing diplomas to people who applied and paid a fee, but not requiring them to go through any nursing education. They'd give no. them a diploma without them having to take any classes. Then right. these individuals sat for their nursing board exams. Many of them didn't pass, but some of them did for some strange reason. And right. then they went off and spread themselves throughout the United States. And we're talking thousands of people who presented them, their credentials as well. I've got a nursing license. I'm not going to tell you that I didn't do anything to earn that license. I didn't study for it. Uh, it has become an investigation at, um, at high government levels to try to identify these individuals and remove them from the work stream. Can yeah. you add anything to what I've just well, I, I think what's going to happen with that too. So um, normally schools of nursing have been under the boards of nursing, the state boards of nursing. So they've actually had some oversight there. And I think there was a time, you know, and, and I might be off on dates or anything like this when, you know, due to the severe nursing shortage that um, it wasn't as rigorous of a process to open up a school of nursing. And, you know, oftentimes people see this as, you know, a way to, you know, and the people who are doing this is a get rich quick scheme, obviously. And it's very sad um, that people would would do this in this in this manner. But I think the students, you know, also maybe had some due diligence in terms of maybe not researching and making sure, um, you know, was the school, was there, you know, certification, was, you know, were, did they have some something to offer? So, it's 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 a sad situation. And, you know, in the long run, I think that what the outcome is going to be is that it is going to cause more stringent oversight, which is definitely needed. And that's one of the responsibility of, of the Board of Nursing in the state is to make sure that the schools of nursing are following the appropriate regulations, that they are being inspected, that they are correcting their deficiencies, that they're not misrepresenting the credentials that they're offering, if they have high failure rates of their graduates, that that's a trigger 
that something is rotten inside the school and needs to be investigated. And of course, for us as legal nurse consultants, we could be involved in a case in which somebody either posed as one of these graduates without any education, or somebody came into a, a school and did not receive adequate education and gets turned out, passes their exam, and is out in practice, and then something untoward happens to the patient that they're taking care of. And I mean, it begs to the, you know, do no harm. You know, that's, you know, what we, you know, beneficence, you know, that's what we, we practice and we encourage. So, you know, and then it, it kind of just, just made me think about the fact that when you were talking about when you spoke in Australia and, you know, for many, many years, you know, the profession of nursing has been ranked, you know, pretty much number one over many other professions in terms of trust. So, you know, I, I think it becomes important, it behooves all of us, you know, to definitely be astute and, you know, to protect our, our profession. What you've just said reminds me, Arlene, of uh, the last job that I had, the last time I got a paycheck, which was in 1987, one of my colleagues was in charge of recruiting and it was fairly loose at that time. The person came in and showed a photocopy of a license and said, I'm a registered nurse, not the actual license, not the physical license, but a photocopy. And she was assigned to ICU. And she started drawing up insulin in a 10cc syringe. And somebody looked over her shoulder and said, you should be using an insulin syringe and not a 10cc syringe. And called up the nursing department and said, I've got a concern. We've got a person here who says she's an RN. That seems to be pretty basic. When they went back and looked at what she submitted, she took the bottom half of her LPN license, covered it up with a full RN license. So it looked like she was an RN, but she pieced these two pieces together. And after, of course, she gets out the door, the hospital said, you know, we need to see the actual license. We can't accept a photocopy never would have occurred to any of us that somebody could do that. Just like it would never occur to me to think, well, if I pay several thousand dollars, I'll get a piece of paper that says I'm a registered nurse without me ever having to do anything hard like study. Like, oh, what could be better? Right. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, there is no, there is, unfortunately, there is no easy way. There's no easy way. School of hard knocks. No, for sure. Well, in the time that we have left, let me ask you two more questions, Arlene. The first is, when you're looking at medical records and evaluating the care of a nurse practitioner, what are some of the common threads that raise red flags? So I think inconsistencies is huge. Um, you know, now with electronic charting, it, it really kind of, you have, you're in the moment. So, I mean, obviously everything is time stamped, so that does help. But I also think that sometimes people might take shortcuts and might omit things that could sometimes be important when you're looking back, because as we've always been taught, if it's not documented, it didn't happen. And oftentimes with electronic medical records, you know, it's check the box here, check the box there. And now with patients having access to be able to see, they might say, mm -mm, that was never done. 
But I, I think the big red flags are definitely inconsistencies, um, you know, something that doesn't fit. I know um, sometimes when I'm reviewing things, I, especially with telehealth, and I'm just going to stick that in because that's a new concept. And, you know, I have had to talk to people about, you know, making sure that even you know, the, the template that that's, you know, a hot top, a hot word too, that it coincides with what your, what your actual encounter is. So example, I mean, if you're doing a telehealth, you have not laid hands on, so you cannot say, you know, talk about heart sounds or lung sounds. You can only really document what you see and hear. So, you know, be, being a, being alert to that. So that's kind of another curveball that's kind of been thrown into this recently. And I think it's going to take on a whole different change moving forward because since COVID, it actually has become more commonplace. I mean, there's still certain restrictions and we're seeing laws that are kind of changing, but um, that's something that, you know, you definitely have to pay attention to because it changes the flavor of, of the documentation. But I, I would definitely say, you know, just making sure that, you know, everything kind of lines up. There's been changes that, you know, some of us that are still old school in coding and documentation, which is saying that now you don't have to put a, as much emphasis in your HPI, which is your history of present illness, which, and you're putting it more in your assessment and plan, but, you know, to me, and when I teach my students, I always tell them you're telling a story. If someone is coming behind you, i.e. an insurance company or, or, or a legal team, you want to make sure that you've presented this case in a logical, sequential form that people can, can follow, that they know why did your actions justify, did the course you take justify what they came in for. So that's kind of what I want to talk about inconsistency is making sure that A plus B does equal C and that there's just not some randomization of ordering things that were not appropriate. Yes, the little loose ends, the little threads that don't get addressed during that encounter that then can come back and haunt the practitioner. Definitely. I know that this conversation has stirred up things in the person who's watching this on our YouTube channel or listening to it on the audio channels. What would be the best way for somebody to contact you and find out more about your services? So they can reach out. My email is probably the best. Um, it's A Wright, just like my last name, W-R-I-G-H-T, 133 at AOL.com. I am on LinkedIn. Um, I am on Facebook, um, Twitter, which is now X. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure about that. Um, but probably, yeah, through, through LinkedIn is a very good professional resource. I encourage that for everybody, especially, you know, when you're, if you are job seeking or just looking for different opportunities. Thank you so much, Arlene. This has Thank been you. a very fast half hour for a podcast. Yes, exactly. And I yes, feel exactly. like we've just... Touch the surface. I know. I guess I'll have to come back for more. Part two. I would welcome that. Thank you, Pat. Thank I you. Thank you. And for you who's been watching this, I appreciate you sticking with us and paying attention and absorbing what Arlene has to share. You can see that we have lots to talk about in terms of the advanced practice role. Something that has changed medical care and expanded nursing care very successfully for decades and continues to adjust and refine a pathway that delivers high quality care to patients in a cost-effective way and provides the education that people so desperately need in order to be able to manage their health better.
Thanks so much for being with us and stay tuned for what's coming up next. Coming up next, you're going to have an opportunity to ride in the back of an ambulance without any of the pain or trauma. Valerie Creel, who is a currently a critical care nurse and a person who spent many years working in EMS, is our next guest. Valerie, tell our listener or the person watching this podcast on Legal Nurse Business on YouTube, tell that person what are some of the topics that we are going to be discussing in your podcast. We are going to be discussing some of the differences between the scope of practice of EMTs and paramedics, some of the types of care that we provide, differences in documentation, some of the hazards that EMS providers face, and a little bit of everything else. And you will hear about the most unusual passenger who ever rode in an ambulance by tuning in next week or clicking on down below to the next show, Valerie Creel is our guest. And it'll give you a little bit of flavor of what happens when the lights and the sirens are on. See you then. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.